1: And away we go, episode 13 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Tuesday, March 9th, 2021. Yes, lucky number 13 for this podcast. And it is a lucky day for the Washington football team's right guard, Brandon Sheriff. I said, Brandon Sheriff. Brandon Sheriff. Yes, thank you, Roger Goodell. $18 million coming the way of Brandon Sheriff if he wants it. Washington on Monday night announcing that, yes, the team has franchised Tag Sheriff for a second consecutive offseason. You likely know where I stand on that. We got a lot to get into with that. Get into it. We shall. Speaking of money, Dak Prescott, mega contract extension with the Dallas Cowboys. What does that mean for our Washington football team? Well, have that conversation today. Special guest on today's podcast, NFL analyst Mark Bullock, one of the best X's and O's and film breakdown guys out there. You've read him in the Washington Post. You've read him on The Athletic. Mark is especially good when it comes to talking about the Washington football team. We are now inside of a week of the start of the NFL's legal tampering period, which gets going this Monday, March 15th. Mark is going to give us in-depth breakdowns of a bunch of potential free agent targets for Washington. Curtis Samuel, Hunter Henry, Matt Milano, Marcus Williams. Mark will talk Marcus Mariota versus Sam Darnold. Uh, Mark will talk NFL draft, including the quarterbacks who might be available to Washington with that number 19 overall pick. You're going to enjoy this. Uh, Mark is terrific and lots of good stuff regarding the Washington football team with him. There's a very under-the-radar phenomenon, I do believe, going on right now with Ron Rivera and the Washington football team. I want to get into that with you on this installment of the Al Galdi podcast. And lots on the Nationals today, including Mike Rizzo on Monday with the latest on potential mega contract extensions for Juan Soto and Trey Turner. Everybody's getting paid these days, right? Sheriff, Dak, Maybe Soto, maybe Turner. We should all be so lucky. I hope you're getting paid too. Uh, you can tweet me at Algaldi. You can email me, the Algaldi Podcast at Yahoo.com. So, of course, lots of conversation on the Monday installment of this podcast regarding the Donnie, right? Dan Snyder and the alleged, supposed, maybe possible. Uh, social media campaign, internet campaign to win himself good publicity, including the bots. Okay, that thing with the bots is an all-timer, if it's true. And I stress that if it's true, we don't know. Uh, but I got this email from Ed. I thought this was interesting. So this really had to do more so with that uh, Sports Junkies report of what the recommendations are from Beth Wilkinson regarding her investigation into the sexual harassment scandal, right? Uh, Beth Wilkinson according to the junkies, and nobody else still, okay, and we'll see what ends up happening with all that, but recommending either Danny divest himself of ownership of the team or Donnie be suspended for a significant period of time. Ed wrote me, I thought, a very interesting email. It said, galdi at the announcement of the investigation, Snyder stated Beth Wilkinson and her firm are empowered to do a full unbiased investigation and make any and all requisite recommendations, end quote, And further stated, quote, upon completion of her work, we will institute new policies and procedures and strengthen our human resources infrastructure to not only avoid these issues in the future, but most importantly, create a team culture that is respectful and inclusive of all. End quote. Continues, Ed. While some may wish to consider the source, the quotes above describe the nature and scope of Beth Wilkinson's investigation. Her job is to determine what happened Determine why it happened and present recommendations which would prevent a recurrence of any offenses. The report would include findings. Punitive actions are determined by the league and don't require recommendations. Upon submission of the Wilkinson report, the league may decide to take punitive action against Dan Snyder and or the WFT in light of the findings. However, I think recommendations for punitive actions are outside the scope of the investigation described in the quotes made by Snyder at its outset. Interesting thoughts from Ed. I think those thoughts are not without merit. But there are a few things to keep in mind with this investigation and how it has been set up. So first of all, the NFL with this investigation, when it got going again last July, okay, we are now well into March and still awaiting the findings of the investigation. But when this thing got going last July, the NFL put out a statement saying that the league would, quote, take any action based on the findings, end quote, of the investigation being done by Wilkinson. There also though is this. So initially, this was framed as Beth Wilkinson has been hired by Dan Snyder to essentially investigate Dan Snyder. Or I guess more accurately, investigate what went on with Dan Snyder's team. Since then, things have changed. And the Washington Post last August 31st did report that the NFL had assumed oversight of the investigation. The piece said that Dan Snyder and Roger Goodell had agreed that it was best if Beth Wilkinson reported to the league instead of the team and the Donnie also in that report and the Donnie also per that report had told the NFL that he would release current and former team employees from non-disclosure agreements for the sole purpose of cooperating with the investigation. But that's important to remember. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's happened with this situation. So it's very easy for stuff to have fallen through the cracks in terms of like what you remember, what you know, etc. But yeah, last August 31st, there was the report from the Post that oversight of the investigation had been transferred from Dan Snyder to the NFL. So I'm not sure that we can be locked into, well, Beth Wilkinson can say this, but not that with her findings or Beth Wilkinson can do this, but not that. When it comes to her recommendations, it's not exactly crystal clear. You know, that's why getting this report, getting these recommendations matters. And we're still waiting on this, you know, and the junkies may well be correct, but as of now, they're the only ones who had this. Nobody else has had this. And it's not even a guarantee at any point we will have this. Like it's not definite. We've never been told the findings of the investigation will be made public. We've just kind of assumed that that would happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And I'll tell you this too, with NFL free agency and the trading period set to get going this coming Monday and then truly on Wednesday, right? Legal tampering period on Monday, start of the new league year on Wednesday. If you're going to do things like strip Washington of its 2021 first round pick or strip Washington of a 2021 draft pick, or I don't know, dock Washington, a bunch of cap room or or whatever punishment you come up with from a football operation standpoint. Seems to me you kind of have to do that now, right? I mean, it would be pretty ridiculous if you get into the new league year, and let's say Washington trades away its first round pick for someone or something, and then it's like, no, actually you don't have that pick. Like, no, you kind of need to tell Washington, here's what you have, and here's what you don't have, uh, because of the sexual harassment scandal. So, you know, I would kind of work that into the mix here too. Like, if you're gonna punish our team, You got to do so soon here because the new league year is about to begin and you need to know what kind of assets you're operating with if you're Ron Rivera in terms of what you can do to try to upgrade your team. But, you know, I had another thought on Monday regarding Danny and the bots and the insanity that has become everything going on off the field with our football team. You know, with this podcast, I'm just wondering, like, is there a way I could use the bots to enhance this podcast? Like, is, is there a way... I could have the bots, you know, like subscribe, rate, and review the Al Galdi podcast? Is there a way I could count the bots as regular downloaders, regular listeners to this podcast? I'd love to be able to do that. So I'll put it to you like this. Danny, if you're listening, or someone connected to Danny, if you're listening, or whoever was responsible for the many many, many female bots tweeting positive things about the Washington football team and Dan Snyder over the last few days here. Uh Hit me up. Maybe we can work something out. Okay. Hey, I've got no shame. All right. So when it comes to the bots, you know, when it comes to the immortal Anna Kresmer and Kiong Rodan and Marsha Pick and Rosa Widowson, golly gee, we love Rosa and Rochelle Dowling, and Ann Gow, and Reba Wiley, and India Edmondson, okay, all these beautiful people, right, tweeting beautiful things about Danny and the football team, you know, the wonderful diversity about the team, and, you know, the phrases like, be the change you want to see in the world, diversity, dot, 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 I see you, NFL, I mean, come on, I want some of that rub, all right, I want some of that love, I want some of that good publicity, you know, instead of shaming Dan Snyder or those potentially associated with him. How about we praise him? This might be genius, marketing genius. Remember, that's how Danny made his money to begin with. Marketing. Maybe this is just next level marketing. All right. So stop shaming the Danny. Stop poking fun at the Danny and start admiring what this man is doing. All right. To football we go. Brandon Sheriff has been tagged again.
0: Brandon Sheriff.
1: So news that was becoming more and more expected became official on Monday night. The Washington football team shortly before 9 p.m. on Monday night officially announcing having placed the non-exclusive franchise tag on right guard Brandon Sheriff for a second consecutive offseason. So the deadline by which NFL teams can tag players is supposed to be today, Tuesday, March 9th at 4 p.m. Eastern. I say supposed to be because there's been talk that the deadline may be extended due to the salary cap for the new league year, still having not been determined. And if you caught SportsCenter late last night, ESPN NFL insider Adam Schefter made it sound like it's still possible. They actually push the deadline back here. Um He doesn't think it's going to happen, but he said that is a possibility here still. So I don't know. It's kind of odd, right? It's like if there's going to be a deadline, shouldn't teams know if that deadline is still being held up or not as you go into the day of the deadline? Uh, that seems kind of strange. But anyway, uh, the deadline is supposed to be Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern. We do know the range of the salary cap for the 2021 season, $180 million to $185 million. Remember, the cap was at about $200 million for 2020. It's going down for the upcoming year because of the lost revenue due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And then everyone on the planet expects the cap to skyrocket over the next few years with all this new television money that's going to be coming in, in addition to the financial windfall that is going to ultimately be legalized gambling. But yeah, uh, deadline was coming up, we think. And Washington did what it felt like it had to do, which is tag Brandon Sheriff again. So Brandon Sheriff, of course, played the 2020 season under the terms of a non-exclusive franchise tag. Uh, the tender he played under was for around $15 million. There's a rule when you tag a guy in back-to-back years. Any player being franchise tag for a second straight year gets a 20% raise. So tagging Sheriff here, once again, with a franchise tag, is giving him a guaranteed 2021 salary of about $18 million. Now, he's got to sign the franchise tag tender to get that, But almost always, these guys end up signing their franchise tag tenders. Now, if you're disgruntled and you don't want to play for the team, that's different. But that certainly does not seem to be the case here for Brandon Sheriff. So he is going to be signing a contract for a guaranteed $18 million for 2021. One of the dumbest things about the NFL, and I don't know why this is the case, but it is the case, is that the NFL includes both tackles and guards under the same tag numbers. For offensive linemen. So in the NFL, not every franchise tag is for the same value, right? There's a franchise tag number for quarterbacks. There's a franchise tag number for receivers, for tight ends, etc. For whatever reason, and I don't understand why, the NFL just has a singular franchise tag number for offensive linemen or singular tag numbers, I guess I should say, because you have various versions of the franchise tag. There's a transition tag, etc. But singular tag numbers for offensive linemen like tackles and guards are lumped together and it is ridiculous okay I mean money for guards has gone up in recent years this is actually probably one of the reasons but tackle and guard two different positions and for the longest time uh two different positions at which you've had very different money tackles have gotten paid a lot more than guards over the years so lumping the two sides together only serves to bring down tackle money And bring up guard money. And I don't know why for the NFL you wouldn't have more nuance with this stuff and say, well, there are tag numbers for guards or interior offensive linemen. You know, maybe you look at it that way and there are tag numbers for tackles. And I know you might say, well, Galdy, some guys play both tackle and guard. That's true, but you can go by the position at which the guy got the most snaps the previous year and say, okay, that's his position. You know, there are ways you can figure it out. And I just think it's ridiculous that the NFL lumps both positions together, but That's the way that it is. Look, you likely know where I stand on this by now. I have wanted no part of Brandon Sheriff playing for Washington under the terms of a second consecutive franchise tag tender in 2021. I've been very clear about this. I've wanted Washington to either sign Sheriff to a long-term deal or to tag him and trade him. That's where I have stood. That's where I continue to stand. I am not thrilled with this news. I'm not because Every indication is that this is not a tag and trade scenario. This is a tag scenario. And while the two sides are still going to work toward doing a long-term deal, we all know how this works by now. When you continually tag somebody, you disincentivize that someone to sign a long-term deal with you because why should he? Why should Brandon Sheriff sign a long-term contract at this point for less than $18 million per year when he's about to make $18 million per year? You know, the the only reason would be, well, it's going to be guaranteed money moving forward. Okay, but if you believe in yourself as a player, as Sheriff does, why not continue to play this year to year or at the very least play this so that you don't sign a long term contract now? you know, especially with the cap going down for this upcoming year. Wait till the cap shoots up and then do your long-term deal when getting $18, $20 million a year may well be feasible and may well be something that teams are open to because again, the cap could go from say $200 million to $300 million in just a few years here. But yeah, tagging him, I don't think helps you get a long-term deal done. I think it's only going to empower Brandon Sheriff. That's the thing that the Kirk Cousins situation, the cha-cha-cha, forever changed about franchise tags, I think it totally flipped the perception of what being franchise tagged can do for a player. And that is, if you believe in yourself and you trust yourself, getting franchise tagged, especially in back-to-back years, as our team did to old Kirky, only enhances your value and only raises the bar and only increases your leverage. I had a saying when it came to the whole Kirk situation a few years back, if you remember Public Enemy, and you remember Flavor Flav, okay? And you remember the song 911 is a joke. There was a line from Flavor Flav in that song. Do you remember the line? Hit me. Yes, exactly. Thank you, Flavor Flav. Hit me. All right? And, and that's what Kirk Cousins ended up saying time and again when it came to the franchise tag: like, you don't want to pay me what I think I'm worth? franchise tag okay hit me hit me that's right slap me hit me hard hit me good let me feel it give me that franchise tag and i'll do it okay i will play your reindeer games i will ride that tag year in and year out and i think that's exactly where sheriff is coming from you don't want to pay me exactly what i'm looking for here especially in an environment in which the salary cap is about to soar to the moon hit me hit me tag me yes And give me that franchise tag money for a second consecutive year. Look, to me, each of the following items is true. Brandon Sheriff is a very good right guard. Brandon Sheriff very much fits the culture that Ron Rivera is trying to establish. Brandon Sheriff has been hurt a lot. Brandon Sheriff plays a position that you can adequately fill on the cheap. Brandon Sheriff being tagged for a second straight offseason only increases his leverage and disincentivizes him from agreeing on a long-term contract. All five of those things to me are true. Like you can like the player and like the person and also admit he's been hurt a lot. He plays a position that you can do on the cheap more often than not. And tagging him really isn't a road to anywhere other than him either leaving you after the 2021 season or you having to pay him even more money after the 2021 season. Like, it's nothing good, okay? And I don't get the sense at all this is a tag-and-trade circumstance. Like, I I don't think that they're looking at this as, well, if we don't work out a long-term deal, we'll just trade the guy this offseason. I think they very much want to keep Brandon Sheriff. And I understand why. He's good. First-team All-Pro in 2020. Like, even if you don't think he was at that level of good in 2020, and there is some debate about whether he was quite that good, he is good. Like, he is really good, you know? Pro Football Focus had Brandon Sheriff ranked number four out of 43 qualified right guards in terms of overall grade for the 2020 regular season at 84.1. The guy can play. The guy's a hard worker. Everybody loves the guy. Nobody has any problems with him beyond basically the injury situation, right? Three more missed games in 2020. He's missed a total of 16 games over the last three years. You look at a lot of the highly paid guards in the NFL, they don't miss a lot of time. You know, the New England Patriots, Joe Tooney has played in every game for the Pats over his five NFL seasons, 2016 through 2020. Kevin Zeitler, New York Giants guard, he's played in 95 of a possible 96 regular season games over six seasons, 2015 through 2020. Like those guys get big money, those guys post. Those guys don't miss time. Sheriff has had a hard time posting for whatever reason. And as I've also pointed out previously, Sheriff is old for his draft class. This should not be ignored. Now, I know that offensive linemen can be good well into their thirties, but Brandon Sheriff already is going into his age 30 season. Okay. Yeah. 2015 draft. I know he's already going into his thirties here. Like time flies, but he was an older guy for that 2015 draft class. You know, Landon Collins, same draft class is essentially three years younger. Then Sheriff Collins is going into his age 27 season. So guard going into his thirties, oft injured, like, yeah, there's some red flags here in terms of, should you really truly pay this guy big money? Like no doubt, no doubt. And of course, with the positional value, that's a whole nother conversation, but I think that is significant. You know, there's a reason Jay Gruden a few years ago referred to Sheriff as right. A guard.
0: Yeah, we're getting there, but you know, we've had what, uh, two first round picks since I've been here? One of them hasn't played a down or played one, one game and the other one's a guard.
1: Yes, Jay. A guard, right? Brandon Sheriff plays a position that all the time teams fill with mid to late draft picks, undrafted guys, uh, free agents on the cheap. Heck, Washington is an example of this the last few years at left guard. Eric Flowers in 2019, an on the cheap free agent pickup. Wes Schweitzer in 2020 and on the cheap free agent pickup. Brandon Sheriff, if we're being truthful, is a failed tackle. That's why he's playing guard. Washington drafted Sheriff as a right tackle out of Iowa with that number five overall pick in the 2015 draft. Moved him to right guard on the second day of training camp. So yeah, like it's not, I'm not here to like try to tear the guy down, but if we're having a truthful, honest, upfront conversation about what he is, that's what he is. You know, he's a failed tackle. That's why he got moved to guard. It's like relievers in baseball. A lot of them are failed starters. That's why they are relievers. A lot of guards are failed tackles. Here, though, is the good news with all this, all right? Because I don't think Washington is in a very good place right now when it comes to maximizing this situation. If you're not going to tag and trade them, you're going to end up overpaying them for this upcoming season with the $18 million. Uh, I do hope they get the long-term deal done this offseason. It is possible, all right? It's not impossible. You got until about mid-July, to get the deal done. But I just don't see what the real impetus is at this point for Brandon Sheriff to do that, right? Why not just play out 2021 for $18 million and then after 2021 with the cap again about to fly to the moon, do your long-term deal then, you know, and and lock in. Maybe you can get 18, 19, $20 million a year at that point with the cap shooting up. But why do the deal now when you don't know how high the cap may end up soaring? But, But here's the good news, If you're a Washington football team fan, you do have the cap space to pay the guy $18 million in 2021. You know, that that is the good news. You're not in a situation where you are up against it with the salary cap. Understand Washington releasing Alex Smith is going to give them about 53 total million dollars in salary cap space for 2021. Again, we're still waiting on what the actual salary cap is going to be. But the projections from overthecap.com have Washington as having about $53 million in salary cap space for this upcoming league year. That is number four in the NFL in terms of cap space. In an environment in which teams are having to cut all kinds of guys because the cap's going down and these teams aren't in great cap shape to begin with, Washington is in a much different situation. You know, you've got to give Washington a lot of credit. It's done a very good job, especially recently. Managing the cap. You know, Ron Rivera, Rob Rogers, Washington's cap guy, uh, they've done a tremendous job. And truth be told, alright, truth be told, I know nobody wants to hear this, but Bruce Allen and probably more so Eric Schaefer, they too did a good job with the cap. Washington has actually been a, in a good spot with the salary cap for a while here. So that's the good news. You know, if you end up overpaying for Sheriff this year at $18 million, if you end up having to pay him more later, in a long-term deal. Uh, well, that's just the way it goes. It's not good. It's not ideal, but it's also not just something that completely crushes you. Because again, you have the cap space here. You can make this work. I just don't think this is the way to do this. I think, to me, long-term deal or tag and trade the guy. And it just feels to me, and I hope I'm proven wrong, but it just feels to me like Washington tagging Brandon Sheriff on Monday night is a one-way street to Brandon Sheriff playing under the terms of a franchise tag tender for a second consecutive year and that to me was like the one thing you wanted to try to avoid with this situation this offseason
0: many other ones a guard
1: yes thank you jay we appreciate that so there was other big money news in the nfl on monday evening and the news had to do with our friends in dallas the cowboys on monday evening officially announcing agreement on a new contract with quarterback dak prescott terms were not disclosed But the terms have been reported all over the place. The contract reportedly a four-year $160 million deal that includes the following, $126 million in guarantees, second most guaranteed money in a contract in NFL history. All right, the only contract with more money in guarantees, the Patrick Mahomes extension with the Kansas City Chiefs, $141.5 million dollars. Dak's deal with the Cowboys includes a $66 million signing bonus, highest signing bonus in NFL history. Dak's deal with them boys includes a record $75 million in year one. So much of that has to do with that $66 million signing bonus. Although the Cowboys astutely have worked this out to where Dak's 2021 salary cap hit is just 22.2 million dollars. So in a year in which the cap will be, you know, 180 to 185 million dollars, Dak's cap hit is not going to be that onerous. 22.2 million dollars. The Dak deal includes a new trade clause. The Dak deal includes a no tag clause. So Dallas is not tagging Dak Prescott for a second consecutive year. Dallas ends up giving Dak the mega money that he's been seeking all along. This was expected. It was never anticipated that Dak Prescott would be leaving the Cowboys this offseason. It was just a question of, well, what are the means by which the Cowboys will be retaining Dak? Will it be via second consecutive franchise tag or will the long-term deal, the LTD end up being done? And obviously the latter now is the case. So sadly we can put to bed any hopes we ever had of Dak coming to the Washington football team. Remember what happened a little more than a month ago? Dak following the Washington football team on Instagram. I I know it's a silly, stupid story, but in today's day and age, I don't think you ignore stuff like that. Social media behavior by high profile athletes. And maybe Dak was just doing this to screw with all of us. Who knows? But it turned out Dak was following the Washington football team on Instagram. The account then very interestingly soon unfollowed the Washington football team on IG. So we may never get to the bottom uh, of that saga, but whatever the case, uh, Dak is not coming to Washington anytime soon. Now, I think there are a few things that are interesting with this Dak contract, especially as those things pertain to the Washington football team. So number one, there's a lesson in all this, and that is Dak's injury, his horrific injury in 2020, ended up having virtually no impact on him getting a long-term deal. Like, had Dak stayed healthy and had a typical Dak season, and the Cowboys had had a typical Cowboys season where maybe they're halfway decent, but they do nothing in the postseason if they even make the postseason? I'm not sure that Dak's contract extension is really that much different than what he ended up getting anyway. You know, Dak suffered, right, that compound fracture and dislocation of the right ankle in that Cowboys win over the New York Giants in week five. It was a nasty looking injury, right? You had good feeling and good wishes from all across the NFL towards Dak with the visual of that injury. I mean, the visual really wasn't that different from the Alex Smith injury. Obviously, Dak's situation has been much better than what Alex ended up going through, but it was nasty looking. There's no doubt about that. Uh So that was a bad injury. It was, of course, a season-ending injury. It was a lower body injury to a guy who's inflicted a lot of damage on opposing teams with his legs. And yet, uh, Dak is getting paid $40 million per year via this new contract. Now, I think with Dak, of course, is that prior to that injury, he had been an extremely durable player. He had never missed a game in four-plus seasons off having been a fourth round pick in the 2016 draft. But I do think that that's notable, that the injury ended up having virtually no impact on Dak getting the big money. It's worth noting this too, Dak over his first four games in 2020 was killing it. He'd thrown over the first four games for 1,690 yards, most passing yards for any quarterback in any four game span in NFL history. Were you aware of that? Dak was off to a white hot start in 2020. And that's another notable thing with Dak. He really has blossomed over the last few years here. Uh, Dak was a good quarterback 2016 through 2018. He's taken his game to another level over the last few years. 2019, Dak was a stud. Fourth in the NFL in ESPN's total QBR. Fifth in the NFL in yards per pass attempt. Second in the NFL in passing yards, and then of course he gets off to that great start in 2020. In fact, Dak, over his first five seasons, even with missing 11 games in 2020, just the second quarterback in NFL history to have at least 100 passing touchdowns, to have at least 100 passing touchdowns, and at least 25 rushing touchdowns over his first five seasons, including the postseason. Like, he really has become a prolific quarterback He is reputedly a great guy, a great teammate. Like nobody has anything bad to say about Dak Prescott as a guy. That's one of the reasons you had that outpouring of support for him off getting hurt in 2020. This is not good news that Dallas has done this, all right? It's a ton of money, no doubt. And we'll actually do some more on that in a moment. But Dak is really good. Dak has been very reliable in terms of availability. I know he got hurt last year, but beyond that, he's been very healthy. Dak is a good dude. This is not some locker room cancer or anything like that. And understand Dak has tormented the Washington football team over the years. I feel like this doesn't get enough attention. Are you aware of Dak's career numbers against Washington over five years? Okay, Record of seven and one, 13 touchdown passes versus one interception. 8.22 yards per pass attempt, a 69.2 completion percentage. Dak has scorched the Washington football team over the years. Now, a lot of those Washington football teams that Dak faced had terrible defenses. Okay, 2016 through 2019, Washington's defenses, for the most part, not very good, all right? The 2017 defense that first Greg Minuski season as defensive coordinator actually was okay. Actually finished top 10 in third down defense that year. But by and large, it's been one bad defense after another for Washington over the years. Things did change in 2020, a season in which Dak plays in just five games. So let's see, right? Let's see with this new era of Washington defense under Ron Rivera and Jack Del Rio and with the likes of Chase Young and Montez Sweat and uh, Kendall Fuller back in the fold and, you know, Cameron Curl and who knows who gets added this offseason. Let's see what that version of the Washington football team defense does against Dak Prescott. But at least as of now, Dak has torched the Washington football team over the years and he ain't going nowhere for years to come. But here's also something to be mindful of with the Dallas Cowboys. OK, so we talked earlier about Washington having all this cap room And you know, even if you have to pay Brandon Sheriff $18 million for 2021, it's not the end of the world. It's not ideal. It's not what I want, but you can do it. It's not an impossibility. Dallas is not in a similar salary cap situation. And it's gonna be mighty interesting to see how Dallas navigates this in years to come. Now, there is a saying when it comes to the cap in the NFL, and that is quite simply, you can do whatever you want from a salary cap standpoint. You know, Washington back in the aughts, back in the uh, first decade of ownership under Dan Snyder, right? The Vinny Serato years. Washington all the time used to pull off moves and people would be like, how are they going to ever make that work with the salary cap? And Washington ended up making it work with the salary cap, thanks in large part to Eric Schaefer, who was a great cap guy. But you can always kind of figure things out with a cap. You can make anything work. That said, take a listen to this now with the Dallas Cowboys. Dak's extension leaves the Cowboys with the following players and average annual values, okay, AAV. So simply on an average per year basis, what are you paying that guy? All right, Dak did a four-year $160 million deal. So that's a $40 million AAV for Dak. All right, so you got Dak Prescott at a $40 million AAV. You got receiver Amari Cooper at a $20 million AAV. You got running back Ezekiel Elliott at a $15 million AAV. Boy, is that a big matzo ball because I know Zeke is good, But a lot of people tell you he's actually not as good now as he was just a few years ago. And if you follow the Cowboys, Dallas gets very good production from Tony Pollard. And you're kind of like, man, in terms of bang for buck, it feels like you're getting a lot more from Pollard than you certainly got from Zeke this past season with all the fumbles. But anyway, Zeke, $15 million AAV. Right guard, Zach Martin, a $14 million AAV. Left tackle, Tyron Smith, a $12.2 million AAV. Right tackle, Lyle Collins, a $10 million AAV. Edge rusher, Demarcus Lawrence, a $21 million AAV. Linebacker, Jalen Smith, a $12.75 million AAV. That's a lot of double digit AAVs that you got to be juggling here over at least the next few years. Dak, Cooper, Zeke, Zach Martin, Tyron Smith, Lyle Collins, Demarcus Lawrence, Jalen Smith. That's a lot of big money that you're paying, guys, really across the board on your roster. And it's one thing if you're killing it and season in, season out, you're winning 10, 11, 12 games. And season in, season out, you're making deep postseason runs. But as we know with Dallas, that hasn't been the case. So good luck with that, Dallas. Good luck with all these big money players here, especially with old Zeke-Ezek at $15 million a year. Paying a running back $15 million a year. Good luck with that. You know, I just listed for you eight different Cowboys players, each with an AAV of at least $12 million. Do you know how many Washington football team players there are with AAVs of at least $10 million for 2021? Four, that's it. Brandon Sheriff, Landon Collins, Chase Rulie, and Kendall Fuller. And for Rulie, you're looking at an AAV at 10.125 million. For Fuller, an AAV of $10 million. Each of those eight Cowboys has an AV of at least $12 million. So just to do a little compare and contrast, we got a whole lot of freedom and a whole lot of wiggle room when it comes to our cap scenario. Dallas, right now, not so much. But yeah, the Cowboys have locked up Dak to a big money deal. Very pleased right now to welcome the Al Galdi Podcast NFL analyst Mark Bullock, one of the best X's and O's guys out there, especially when it comes to the Washington football team. He's worked for the Washington Post and The Athletic. You can follow him on Twitter at Mark Bullock NFL, and you can check out his work as I have at MarkBullock.substack.com. Mark, it's great to talk to you, man. How are you? Uh, I'm
2: very good. Thanks for having me on. How
1: are you? Yeah, doing well. Appreciate you coming on very much. So, before we truly get going here, how did you get involved? I mean, a guy from England breaking down football, as you do so well.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of an odd one, isn't it? Um, I, I, I was, when I was younger, my, my, my dad's job took us out to the States um, when I was about five. Uh, I lived out there for five years, so I, I kind of had an upbringing in, in U.S. sports. Um, and then when I came back here, I kind of fell back into more of the U.K. sports. Um, and then when I was sort of 17, 18... Um, the NFL started becoming more popular here, it was on TV regularly, um, and I just got more and more into it. Um, and, and I've always kind of been a, an analytical kind of guy in, in, in watching why things happen rather than just being like, oh, that was a good pass, or that was a good run. What, uh, i like to see why that happens. So, um, I, I, and the NFL is kind of a great platform for um, breaking down why things happen because it's a play-by-play basis. So um, yeah, that kind of always piqued my interest, and I just, like I just had a lot of spare time and uh, got into it, and uh, really enjoyed getting into learning more and more about the game. That's
1: really cool. NFL, of course, has been going over to England for years. How is the NFL doing in England? Like, is the NFL a big deal? Do people like American football?
2: Yeah, they do. Um, it, it, I, I wouldn't say it's encroaching on any of the top sports here, but it's um, certainly growing. Um, and you know, those those NFL games that they bring to London um, usually get sold out, um, and it, it can be a pretty terrible game that they can send over here, and it can get sold out um, and, because it's one of the few times a year that the fans get to. Kind of gather and have the kind of NFL experience, the tailgating and, and all that kind of thing. That that just doesn't happen here otherwise. So um, yeah, it's um, it's doing pretty well and it's growing. Obviously, the pandemic hurts it, um, but it was growing pretty strongly and they were adding more and more games and talks of bringing a franchise over. And uh, personally, it would be amazing to see, but I, I don't know whether the logistics of that work out or not.
1: Yeah, well, you mentioned terrible games. We all remember the Washington football game over in London there in October 2016, the tie with the Cincinnati Bengals. Although I guess that was kind of an entertaining game. It just did not end the way uh, we all wanted it to. But anyway, uh, yeah, so I want to bounce a bunch of Washington football team-related stuff off you and just kind of get your takes on some things. A lot of talk right now, uh, obviously, about Brandon Sheriff, You know what the proper valuation is for guard, et cetera. Uh, You've studied Sheriff. You analyze interior line play. What's your take on how good he is and the extent to which you could, say, approximate his production with a substantially cheaper option?
2: Yeah, I've always valued Sheriff as one of the better guards in the league. And and the more that I've watched him, um, I've been more convinced that he is that. Um, Obviously... The injuries play a factor into it um, because he's not been able to play consistently um, 16-game seasons back-to-back-to-back. And and you'd feel a lot better about giving him that long-term contract and and locking him in with that amount of money. Um, If if you could kind of see that, hey, he's been consistent in playing 16 games a year for his whole career, um, you'd feel a little bit more comfortable about it. Um, But in terms of when he's on the field and his ability... um, as a Just as a guard, he, he is definitely one of the best in the league, and, and his versatility in that he's so strong, he's very athletic for a guard, um, he allows them to do basically anything they want to do in the run game, because he can run the zone scheme stuff, he's athletic enough to do that, he can pull to the edge if they want to run power schemes, he can um, get outside on screens, and, and all that kind of stuff, so he does all the different things that you could possibly ask a guard to do and more. And that gives them a lot of flexibility. So um, for me, he, he's right up there with the top guards in the league. And, and I've always advocated saying he deserves to be paid like that. And, and they'd be smart to do that in, in, in my evaluation.
1: While we're talking Sheriff and just offensive line play in general, I thought one of the really interesting things about this past season was what the offensive line was. Because, you know, we had this thing early in the year where the perception was the offensive line wasn't very good. And then by the end of the year, it sure seemed to be at least decent. And if you go by some of the data that's out there, especially the pro football focus stuff, the act, the uh, the reality with the line was that it actually was pretty good, like upper half of the NFL type good. What's your opinion of the performance of Washington's offensive line in 2020?
2: Yeah, they kind of stumbled into something towards the end of the year. Um, that Morgan Moses bounced back, which I wasn't fully expecting, but he bounced back after a couple of rough rush years, and he had a really good season of right tackle. Um Sheriff was, a as his, his normal self, at right guard. But Rudier really stepped up, and he was rewarded with that contract extension. And when when they got Schweitzer in at left guard um, after starting with Martin, um, they they kind of found an interior three with Sheriff, Rudier, and Schweitzer. Those three really connected, and they were passing off stunts in the passing game really well. Um, they were getting a ton of movement when they were running zone scheme stuff, and I think that was kind of when we saw the run game start to take off and Gibson had a couple of strong games before he got hurt um, because they were generating so much movement inside um, and creating those lanes for him to cut into. So, um, yeah, I I think they really found something in Schweitzer, Rullier, and Sheriff and obviously Moses bouncing back gives them a a good four. Um, I I think they still need something at left tackle. I'm I'm not convinced Cornelius Lucas is the long-term answer there and and I'm not a huge fan of Peron Christian either, but... um, so I think they probably still need, they still have a hole at the kind of the most important spot on the line. But I, I think the other four guys that they've got, um, assuming they keep Sheriff, um, is a really good foundation for building the offense going forward.
1: We're talking with NFL analyst Mark Bullock. So, of course, the A topic with Washington this offseason has been what's next at quarterback. We have the NFL's legal tampering period beginning on March 15th. The new league year gets going on March 17th. Two veterans most frequently tied to Washington have been Marcus Mariota and Sam Darnold. Each guy, of course, is under contract, so isn't necessarily available, but we'll see. But uh, that said, I know you've looked at each guy. Would either guy, Mariota or Darnold, be a great fit for Washington, in your opinion? Uh,
2: I don't know about a great fit, because if they were great fits, they probably wouldn't be available. Um, but I, I like I like both guys to an extent. I, I think Mariota would probably be the better fit for Washington. Um, he has a lot of skills that, if you just look at a set of tools for a quarterback, Mariota has all the different kind of tools that you want. Um, he's mobile, he's accurate, he um, anticipates throws, he can move around in the pocket, um, and he can extend plays. Um, and so I, I think he's kind of the guy that I would probably look at more than Darnold because of the cost involved. Um, and and I, I think he's someone that, could fit in and and if he finds himself in the right system and the and the this the scheme that Scott Turner runs um fits in which I, I think it does to an extent. Um that they do a lot of the um kind of spreading guys around and working from empty sets that Mariota did a lot in college um and they could quite easily incorporate Mariota into the running game with um with working out of the shotgun and Antonio Gibson like they did a lot last year. Um, so I think he would fit in in a lot of different aspects of what Washington does. So, um, Mario would be the guy I would look to. Um, but I I think Donald has something to him as well. Um, I think that's always been kind of the the deal with Donald is he makes some bad decisions, decisions, but he always seems to have that it factor about him. Um, and and he makes some nice plays on third down. He has some mobility as well. Um, so, there, there's something to Donald, but I think the cost involved in getting Donald and the contract involved with Donald would put me off of that. I, I wouldn't want to be locked into him for two or three years or whatever you'd have to do to to get Donald. Um, whereas Mariota, he he could end up being cut by the Raiders, and you can sign for free on one year deal or two year deal and, and be able to this time next year pick your actual guy if it doesn't work out.
1: Yeah, I mean, you'd have to immediately decide on that fifth-year option with Darnold, which would be kind of an odd position to be in. You mentioned Scott Turner. Schematically speaking, because I know the offense as a whole wasn't great last year, but just like in terms of what you saw from an X's and O standpoint, what did you make of Scott Turner in the offense he made usage of?
0: Yeah, I think
2: at the start of the year, sort of the first half of the year, we saw um, an offense that it, it was kind of feeling out what he had in terms of his, his skill set um, with, with his players um, and trying to fit his scheme to his players and his players into his scheme. Um, and so we saw a system that at the start of the year, I, I felt that it was sort of a lot of different packages that, the, as I said, the empty stuff to, to try to get like Terry McLaurin inside in the slot, matched up on a linebacker. That was something they did a lot. Um the vertical passing game, even though it didn't come off, they tried a fair amount and the different uh, variations of like four verticals concepts. It, it all kind of felt like there was a couple of nice different packages, but they weren't meshing together very well. Um, and I think what we saw as the season went on, and obviously they had a little bit more stability at quarterback. They had more stability on the offensive line, and, and Turner was a little had a little bit more understanding of what he had with the likes of McLaurin and Gibson and, and all those guys. Um, I think we saw all the different packages kind of mesh together a little bit better, and it started to come together a little bit more. Um, and obviously, whatever quarterback they go with this year is going to change that um, to a degree but I think there is a solid foundation to go from.
1: So Washington of course has a lot of cap space and a lot of people are expecting Washington to be significant players in free agency. A popular non-quarterback who many expect and want Washington to pursue in free agency is the Carolina Panthers receiver Curtis Samuel. The fit seems obvious you say maybe not why is that?
2: Yeah. Yeah so obviously the he has a ton of connections to uh Washington with, with Ron Rivera, with Marty Herney, with Scott Turner. Um, he has a ton of connections um, and even an underrated one is he played with Terry McLaurin in college and they were supposedly roommates. Um, so like there is plenty of connections and it's not that I don't see him as a fit. I I think the issue for me is that Washington in my opinion needs an outside receiver or a Z receiver. Um, and Samuel played the Z receiver under Scott Turner but he was limited in what he could do. He he does a lot of the gadget type stuff, like uh, the jet sweeps, the end arounds, the motioning into the backfield, taking carries, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so Washington has a lot of those type of guys. They've got Gibson, they've got McKissick, they've got Stephen Sims. That I know a lot of people are already ready to write off, but they've got those three guys that can do that kind of role. Um, And they need someone on the outside that can stretch the field and and track the ball down the field and and make catches and and take some attention off of McLaurin. And I think what we saw from Samuel um, this year where he didn't have Turner or Herney or um, Rivera there, he was under a new system. He moved inside to the slot where that role suited him a lot more and he had a lot more space and and he could work underneath a lot more and, and he could use his athleticism to beat people in the open field and catch shallow crosses and all that kind of thing. Um, So I think that kind of suits him a little bit more. And Washington could certainly say, well, yeah, we still need that kind of player as well. We can put him in the slot and do those kind of things. But he's projected to get something like 10 to 15 million a year in free agency, um, which he deserves that amount of money. He's a great talent, but you're paying that for a slot receiver to you already have three guys that can kind of fill that same role? Um, doesn't seem like the wisest investment to me um, when they still need someone to play outside and, and stretch the field opposite McLaurin.
1: The top three agent to be a tight end is Hunter Henry. Got to be mindful of his injury history, but we know he's good. You know, you think about what he and Logan Thomas could be in double tight end sets. Would you pay big money for Henry?
2: Uh, he'd be one that I would certainly look at targeting. Um, obviously, you'd have to be comfortable with that injury history, as you said. Um, but from a, a skill set standpoint, um, he's one of those athletic receiving tight ends that um, can win in more ways than Logan Thomas currently can. Logan Thomas had a fantastic year, but he's the kind of guy that will find holes in zone coverage and um, make some solid, reliable catches. But Hunter Henry is a guy that can separate from man coverage regardless of who's against him. He has the quickness to do that. Um, He has the the speed to run by guys, but also the the short burst, uh, short areas, uh, quickness with the bursting to gain and out of breaks um, and separate from his route running. Um, So that is someone that I, I would look to target if I was Washington, um, and, and you could possibly say, well, if we can go with two tight end sets and Logan Thomas and Hunter Henry, um, maybe we don't necessarily need to go out and pay huge money for another receiver on the outside as well, because we can use those two tight end sets and, and have Hunter Henry as kind of another receiving option, um, and you know spread out, as we talked about, into the empty sets, and, and get McLaurin inside with Hunter Henry on the outside, and give your quarterbacks some good pre-snap information and, and try to get McLaurin matched up on a on linebacker inside.
1: Shifting to the defense, another free agent to be who's come up a lot for Washington is Buffalo Bills linebacker Matt Milano. Would he be the upgrade at that position that Washington pretty obviously needs?
2: Yeah, well, I think they need they need to fill two spots at linebacker. They, they need a, a, a will linebacker or a weak side linebacker, and that's something that I think Milano would fill. He's a, he's a very good coverage linebacker. He he. As a natural fit in Washington, because Buffalo runs a very similar scheme, um, and, and you know Brandon Bean and um, Scott McDerm- uh, sorry, Sean McDermott um, went from Carolina when Rivera was there and Hurley was there up to Buffalo, um, and so they they run a lot of the same stuff. So there's a natural fit there. Um, that they also need a, a middle linebacker or a Mike linebacker, and that's that's not what Milano is. He's not a guy that will get in and and Rough it up against the guards and the tackles and the centers. He's not someone that's going to shed blocks. He's someone that needs to be protected from that a little bit because he's a little bit undersized. He's more of the kind of the modern, so to speak, linebackers that are a little bit undersized, but um, fast and athletic and, and can cover. And Washington certainly needs that. Uh, um, they, they, and he would be a, a very good fit at the will spot, but they would also still need uh, a Mike linebacker to go along with
1: him. And one more free agent question for you. This is great. Just getting your kind of quick Profiles and all these different guys. The New Orleans Saints free safety, Marcus Williams. I, I know you really like him as a free agent for Washington. What jumps out at you?
2: Yeah, I, I think that he, he offers a lot of versatility in that he, in, uh, in New Orleans, he played a lot of um, deep safety as the single high safety. Uh, and Washington played plenty of color three where they have just one deep safety in the middle. And that would allow whoever the strong safety is, if it's Cameron Curl, if it's Simon Collins. Um, either one, to play more in the box, um, where they both played pretty well, and certainly Cameron Crowell played very well last year, and Collins had typically been an in-the-box safety, Um, so Williams would allow him to do that, but Washington also likes to play a lot of quarters, which requires both safeties to play deep, and Cameron Crowell can do that, and Collins isn't quite as effective at at that role, and Williams could um, quite easily interchange between two deep looks and and single-high looks, and, and and represent a, a good, solid coverage guy um, that would that also makes reliable tackles and can come down and, and and play some run stuff as well.
1: Talking with NFL analyst Mark Bullock, so we have the NFL draft, of course, and that is an option for Washington in terms of addressing quarterback. We'll, we'll put aside the consensus top two quarterbacks in this draft, right? Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, barring the unforeseen. Washington has no chance at either guy. But when it comes to that next tier of quarterbacks, you know, Justin Fields, Trey Lance, Mac Jones in particular, like those three, w- what do you make of them? I mean, it's it's far from a given that they any of them falls to 19. But were one or more to fall, or were one or more to drop to say, you know, 14, 15, 16, and Washington can make a reasonable trade up, do you like any of those guys enough to where you say, you know what, maybe that's the guy Washington should target in terms of trying to add to its quarterback inventory this off season.
2: Yeah. Uh, there's, it's an interesting quarterback class because every one of those top guys has something to like about them. It, 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 normally when I watch quarterbacks at the draft, I, I kind of feel like I don't really like much about this guy, or I really like this about this guy, but each one kind of has something to really like about them. And, um, Justin Fields is a guy that I feel like, where it, we, back in sort of 2010, 2015 range, where Mike Shanahan was the head coach and we had the Shanahan system, I think Justin Fields would have fit into that perfectly. Um, He, he plays, uh, even though he's a mobile quarterback, he plays kind of like a pocket quarterback in that he almost deliberately tries to stay in the pocket and work through his progressions, almost to his detriment because he has the athleticism that when a play breaks down, he could just take off running and pick up yards. Um, but he almost tries extra hard to stay in the pocket. Um, but he's also excellent throwing on the run, and, and he can execute the things like bootlegs and rollouts and um, the kind of sprint right plays, sprint lefts, and um, those kind of things that the Shanahan's ran a ton with RG3 or just in general. Um, that, I think, is kind of his ideal fit, and that's not quite what Washington does anymore. Um, so... The fields can certainly fit into what they do, uh, and they can certainly fit the system to fields, but I don't necessarily see it as the ideal fit. Um, Matt Jones probably fits a little bit more with what they try to do, um, and I think Jones is someone that uh, I think NFL teams will like a lot more than fans will because teams like a quarterback that will play within their structure of their system and, and understands exactly where they're going with the ball, regardless of what the coverage is or what kind of blitz they see and understand, okay, if I get two rushes off this side, I'm, I've got to throw a heart, so I've got to make this adjustment and throw this receiver. But if I don't get that and the safeties rotate so from single eye to two deep, then I've got to go to this side of the field and work to this receiver. And Matt Jones understands all of that and is very good at all of that. Um, where he falls down is that um, he struggles when it comes to working off scripts and that is where the NFL is trending in that teams on third down send blitzes and quarterbacks don't have time to sit in the pocket and sort of pick apart defense, they they have to be able to work off scripts and it was kind of what we saw in Washington with Cousins is that he struggled when plays broke down, he had to work off scripts and that's the same thing Matt Jones struggles with, is he doesn't work off scripts at all um, and that can cause some negative plays um, and we mean that if the structure of the play isn't perfect um, and often in the NFL it isn't because you know defensive coordinators are good they get paid money too um, then where do you go where's his ceiling um, and, and so that's the issue with Mac Jones. Um, Trey Lance is someone that I haven't watched too much of yet um, he's the next guy I'm getting into um, but from what I've seen of him um, he has a great arm to throw down the field he's a very nice deep ball um, he plays in a quite a pro style system, um, that has churned out quite a few quarterbacks, Josh Allen and, and Carson Wentz. Um, and that system, while the terminology is slightly different, it's very pro style in that he has to handle a lot of the line of scrimmage and, and, um, work through all the different formations and motions and shifts and stuff. Um, and understand the different kinds of reads, whether it's just a pure progression where he's working one to two to three or whether it's a coverage read where it's I know that there's two deep safety so I have to work to the right, but if they rotate to one then I've got to work to the left and that kind of thing. Um, so he seems to be a, quite a good quarterback um in b- between, the, uh, between the ears. years, um, but uh, the one concern I've seen from what the little I've seen of him so far is I think mechanically he has few issues with with his footwork and his drops, and I feel like his his throwing motion's a little bit more elongated than I would like.
1: Do you worry with Lance about the FCS competition, about having only played in one game in 2020 or not so much with either factor? Uh,
2: I, I do worry about the game, the one game in 2020, um, because from what I've seen of it, that was his worst game from uh, any that he's played. Um, if you basically just off his 2019 film he was very very good um but then you look at the one game he played this year and he had quite a few issues so you kind of have to weigh up how much does that one game outweigh even though it's the most recent one how much does it outweigh the more uh sample size from his 2019 so um that does worry me but the issue of the lower competition doesn't really concern me um that obviously if you have receivers that are just going to beat guys that, uh, and, and you're just going to be able, the defense plays man coverage and you have a better receiver in that corner and he's just going to win, then that makes it kind of irrelevant. But his receivers were the same talent level as the defenders on the opposite yeah. side. So it's not like he was just getting receivers winning their matchup constantly and, and having easy reads. He had to make progressions and go through his reads and like I I've kind of said before that in a defence a cover three is the same regardless of the level of competition. Like you still have to be able to read this guy's rotating here, this guy's dropping into the box and all this kind of thing. So like yeah, he still will know what cover three is regardless of who the opposition is. So he's he's I, I'm not too worried about the level of competition played against it, it the but the one game in twenty twenty concerns me a little bit because of just how Bad it was in comparison to his 2019. And with Mac Jones, it's
1: interesting you make that Kirk Cousins comparison. In your experience, can a guy get better at the off schedule play, or is that just kind of an eight and you either got it or you don't?
2: Uh, to a degree, they can improve, but I, I think it is something that comes quite natural. Um, and obviously, there's an athleticism part to it of being able to outrun guys and. then being able to throw on the run and, and having the natural, like you see the guys like Mahomes that can drop their arm and, and throw like a, a shortstop in baseball, um, those sidearm throws and, and that kind of thing. Like that all plays into it. And then that's stuff that Matt Jones just doesn't do. Um, so he, there's only so much he can improve because athletically he's limited. Um, but he can certainly do a better job than he does um, and can be coached with certain drills. And I think it's not that he can't live in the NFL from not being able to work off script because we've just seen a quarterback win the Super Bowl in Tom Brady that, you know, it doesn't go off script very often and isn't the guy that's going to scramble around. So, it's not that that kind of quarterback can't be successful, but it gives you a significantly less margin for error. And the reason why Tom Brady's so good and has been so good is because he understands defenses, he's seen everything and he knows exactly how to beat every look. Whereas a young quarterback like Mac Jones, is he going to have the time to learn all of that and, and gain that knowledge base that a Brady or a Peyton Manning or all those kind of guys used to have? Um, and I, I don't know, the, the modern NFL tends to be leaning into the direction of the mobile guys that if stuff breaks down and, and they, they need to make a play in a key situation, they can scramble around a bit and have the athleticism to do that and, and work off screens. Um, and I, I think that's where a lot of the explosive plays are now in the NFL, and, and that's something that Matt Jones just doesn't bring to the table.
1: One more for you, and I really appreciate your time. So, a lot of mock drafts have had Washington taking the Florida receiver Kadarius Tony with that number 19 overall pick. You've studied Tony. What'd you find?
2: I absolutely loved him. I, I if he was someone that I've seen a lot of receiver rankings in the draft, and, and um, when I saw Tony first linked to Washington, I was like, I haven't seen his name on any lists. Um, that's kind of a surprising. one. Uh, and then I watched him and. I loved him. He he's a, a very versatile guy um, that can do kind of similar to what we were talking about for Samuel in that he can take all the kind of gadgety stuff where he um, can do the end arounds, the jet sweeps, the reverses, um, move motion into the backfield, take handoffs, um, all those kind of things. Um, but he can also win with quickness um, from the slot and his route running is very good. He's very very quick in and out of breaks. Um, and he also tracks the ball down the field really well. Um, So he was a vertical threat from the slot, um, and he was someone that they often hit on on slot fades and and stuff like that down the field. Um, So he was a very well-rounded receiver. I would have loved to have seen him get to the opportunity to play outside a little bit more, Um, but Florida kept him in the slot, and and I see why, because he was very good there. Um, But I I feel like he has the potential to expand his role a little bit more and, and And play a little bit more outside but even if you took him at 19 and you said you're just our slot receiver he'd be incredibly productive um uh, he's someone that i absolutely love
1: as you can tell by the conversation we just had mark knows his stuff nfl analyst mark bullock follow him on twitter at mark bullock nfl and check out his work online at mark it was great to have you on man thanks so much hope we can do it again yeah of course anytime thank you All right, one more Washington football team topic for you, and then we'll talk some nationals here on this Tuesday. So if you are familiar with the all-time classic movie, The Godfather, what is to me the greatest movie of all time, and it was well before my time, but I've watched it many times, as I'm sure many of you listening have, you have toward the end of the movie what is known as the Baptism of Fire, okay? The Baptism of Fire is a series of scenes late in the movie during which Michael Corleone exacts his revenge and eliminates the enemies and eliminates the enemies of the Corleone family, right? The likes of Mo Green and Philip Tataglia and Emilio Barzini, right? People like that. It's also, by the way, late in The Godfather that the Corleones kill two of their own for being traitors, right? Connie Corleone's husband Carlo and Salvatore Tessio. You know, that's a very sad scene with old Tessio when he's like, for old time's sake. You can't let this pass, and I'm like, no, sorry, Sally, we got to do you. We we got to put an end to you. Uh, That that is a powerful, powerful moment in The Godfather. But I bring all this up because right now I do believe, and it's not necessarily getting a ton of attention, but Ron Rivera is orchestrating his own version of a baptism of fire with the Washington Football Team. Okay, we had more news come out on Monday regarding another departure of a longtime person within the organization. Now, look, a lot of these people departing are people you likely have never heard of, or if you have heard of them, it was like one time, you know, one day, many years ago, that kind of a thing. But on Monday, there was a report from Washington football team insider, Chris Russell of SI.com, one of our pals, that the Washington football team and this guy, Elliot German, had mutually parted ways. Uh, German had served as a physical therapist and assistant athletic trainer for the Washington football team since joining it all the way back in 2008. This news about Elliot German came just a few days after we got what we got on Friday, when we had multiple reports that Director of Football Operations, Paul Kelly, and Head Equipment Manager, Anders, uh, Botel, or Butel, it's spelled B-E-U-T-E-L, uh, anyway, were out. Okay? Kelly had been Washington's Director of Football Operations since February 2010. Botel, or Butel, had been with Washington since 2001 and had served as head equipment manager since Valentine's Day 2014. Okay. Think about what happened earlier this offseason, right? The departure of vice president of player personnel Kyle Smith, right? He joined the Atlanta Falcons for the exact same role. Think about what came out the same day that the news came out that Kyle was joining the Atlanta Falcons. Multiple reports that Washington had parted ways with three other top people in the scouting department. Jeff Scott, Cole Spencer, and Brian Zekis. And you're getting a picture here of a lot of guys who had been with the team no longer being with the team. This is a purge by Ron Rivera. This is, like I said, a baptism of fire by Ron Rivera. And it's not necessarily that all of these people are enemies of Ron or anything like that, but it is definitely a movement of Ron's bringing in his own guys, his own people, you know, Kyle Smith gone, Paul Kelly gone, Jeff Scott gone, Cole Spencer gone, Brian Zekis gone, Elliot German gone, like all these different people who've been with the team for a very long time are out. They're no longer here. And, you know, you could say on the one hand, well, come on. I mean, Ron got here a year ago, kind of saw what he had in these people, saw what he had in these various departments and then has decided with a year's experience and a year's worth of knowledge about what he has and what he doesn't have, has decided to make some changes. And that may well be the case. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I think it's really notable. And I think it's telling. And I think this common theme for all these people that they're longtime guys and they're a long time no more because they're no longer here. I don't think that should be ignored. You know, a lot of these people Were brought in by Bruce Allen. You know, a lot of these guys are what you would call Bruce guys. Kyle Smith was a Bruce guy. He joined Washington as an intern in 2010. Had climbed the ladder ever since. Uh, Jeff Scott was a Bruce guy. Jeff Scott had been Washington's assistant director of pro scouting slash advanced coordinator. Uh, He joined Washington as a scouting intern in December 2011. Cole Spencer had been a national scout for Washington. He joined Washington in 2010 as a scouting intern. Brian Zekis had been a personnel coordinator and pro scout for Washington. He joined the team as an administrative assistant in July 2014. Are you picking up a theme here? All of these guys were brought to the organization by Brucifer, had risen in the organization during Brucifer's tenure. What about this guy, Paul Kelly? All right, Paul Kelly, I don't know if you've heard his name before or not. You, you got to be kind of a wonky Washington football team fan to know of Paul Kelly, but his name would come up every now and again. Paul Kelly was the director of football operations for Washington. He had served that role since February 2010. The entirety, essentially, of Bruce Allen's tenure with the team. Brucey got hired in December 2009. Paul Kelly becomes director of football ops in February 2010. It's not, though, just that. Paul Kelly was one of the biggest Bruce Allen guys. Paul Kelly spent six seasons with the Oakland Raiders, 1998 to 2003. That was during Bruce's time as a Raiders executive. Brucey was a Raiders exec, 95 to 2003. Paul Kelly spent five seasons with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Guess which five seasons those happened to be? 2004 to 2008, which just happens to be the entirety of Brucey's tenure as Buccaneers general manager. Paul Kelly was a Bruce Allen guy, and yet he's out, just like Kyle Smith, just like Jeff Scott, just like Cole Spencer, just like Brian Zekes. You know, this guy, Elliot German, whose departure we found out about on Monday, he had served as a physical therapist and assistant athletic trainer for Washington since joining it in 2008. So German's arrival actually predated Brucey's arrival, but obviously German had lasted throughout the Brucey tenure, and now he is gone. Now, Take all of this and add onto it what happened last offseason, right? Remember some of those who were ousted last offseason. Ron Rivera in the 2020 offseason, right, parted ways with Eric Schaefer, the Washington Senior Vice President of Football Operations and General Counsel. He'd been with the team since joining it as a salary cap manager in 2003. So Schaefer's arrival obviously predated Bruce, but Schaefer had risen through the ranks during Bruce's tenure. Uh, Ron Rivera, member, allowed the offensive coordinator, Kevin O'Connell, to lead the organization, despite him reportedly having a year left on his contract. And, and this was as big as maybe anything last offseason, Ron fired the head athletic trainer, Larry Hess, who had been with Washington since 2002, had been the team's head athletic trainer since February 2010. Hess gets the role, again, basically right when Bruce arrives as head athletic trainer. And the other thing with Hess too, to be mindful of Larry Hess was very much a Dan Snyder guy. Larry Hess had survived for years. He was known to be a Danny guy. Hess gets ousted last off season. Of course, so much of that had to do with all the complaints that had arisen regarding Washington's training staff, right? Trent Williams, Quentin Dunbar, Morgan Moses, etc. cetera. But I think it's impossible not to be paying attention to this. I think it's impossible to just dismiss all of this as mere coincidence and don't look here. Ron Rivera is a 100% putting his stamp on this organization. Ron Rivera is a 100% eliminating people he's not a fan of and or doesn't trust. And it's that latter point that I want to harp on for just a moment. If I asked you what has doomed Ron's predecessors more than anything, whether you're talking about Jay Gruden, or Mike Shanahan, or Marty Schottenheimer, or whoever else. Even people who you look back upon and you say, hmm, you know, I don't know about him. You know, someone like, you know, Jim Zorn or Steve Spurrier, right? If, if I ask you, like, what is kind of the common thing that did in all of those people? You would say Dan Snyder and his top underling. So either Vinnie Serrato or Bruce Allen. Ron Rivera knows this. Ron Rivera has seen, or at the very least is aware, of the infighting, and of the self-sabotaging nature with the Washington football team over the years. I.e., Mike is here, is supposed to have full say-so over everything, and yet Danny, in cahoots with Brucie, ends up doing things like trading for Donovan McNabb, right? Jay is the head coach, wants to at least have some kind of input in what's going on here, and yet Brucie is doing all kinds of things behind Jay's back, including trading for Alex Smith. Danny is doing things behind Jay's back, like orchestrating the drafting of Dwayne Haskins with the number 15 overall pick in 2019. In other words, inevitably, a divide has come up between the ownership slash upper echelons of the front office and the coach, okay? And we've seen this many times. Steve Spurrier had issues with Vinny Serato. Jim Zorn had issues with Vinny Serrato. Mike Shanahan had issues with Dan Snyder. Jay Gruden had issues with Bruce Allen. And on and on we can go in terms of the infighting within the organization. It's why we always talk about organizational alignment. Washington hasn't had it. Ron Rivera is hopefully here establishing it. But I very much believe that Ron Rivera in getting rid of people he doesn't like and or doesn't trust is fortifying himself Against that pitfall that has doomed so many, if not every one of his predecessors. Ron to me is establishing his army. He's establishing his mafia. He's establishing his capos. His guys who he knows he can trust. Okay? He's brought in so many guys from the Carolina Panthers. Not just to reward his friends. Not just to have guys with him who he feels like are good at their jobs. But also to have people here who he can trust. And so if the stuff ever goes down and if a line in the sand is ever drawn and if there does start to be any kind of divide between Ron and Dan or Ron and Dan and others in the higher levels of the organization, Ron has got his backup. You know, Ron has got his crew. Ron has got a horde of people who he knows aren't going to start leaking stuff left and right, negative to Ron. Ron has got someone like a Marty Herney on his side. Like, you know Marty Herney is a Ron guy and is gonna be on Team Ron no matter what happens. You know, the head athletic trainer, Ryan Vermillion, longtime Carolina Panthers guy, he's on Ron's side. He's got Ron's back. He's part of Ron's army. The cap guy, Rob Rogers, another longtime Panthers guy. He's Team Ron. He's part of Ron's army, Ron's mafia. Ron is building up a base of people Ron is building up a group that is with him and is loyal to him, not people who are loyal to Bruce or brought here by Bruce or have been here even since maybe before Bruce. Ron has got his guys, his blood, his crew, and they're going to be beholden to Ron and loyal to Ron and Ron knows if it goes down and issues arise between himself and Danny, Ron's got his backup, and Ron's got his army, and I think that is so much a part of what's happening here especially in this organization with its history, with its owner, you've got to protect yourself. You've got to have for yourself a plan of action that you feel like is gonna ensure that the things that doom those who came before you don't doom you. And I think that's a lot of what's happening here. It's really telling. All these longtime people, especially people brought here by Bruce, loyal to Bruce, are being whacked Allah, the baptism of fire in the Godfather And Ron's doing this. And you know what? I don't blame him one bit. Well, when it comes to establishing your authority, as Cartman on South Park would say, we know who is in charge of the Washington Nationals. It is Mike Rizzo. It has been for years. He is the ninja. He is the president of baseball operations and general manager. And as best as we can tell, there ain't been no infighting with the Nats over the years. In fact, if anything, Mike Rizzo has had to manage up uh, with the learners as opposed to ever having to manage down. Anyway, Mike Rizzo on Monday at National Spring Training at a Zoom press conference did address the potential for long-term contract extensions for the Nats' two best position players, Juan Soto and Trey Turner. This has been kind of an ongoing thing, right? Uh, are the Nats going to do big money long-term deals with Soto and Turner perhaps as soon as As this spring training or this season, uh, and we got this from Rizzo on Monday. Quote, we've discussed internally with ownership about it. We're in the midst of making decisions on what a timeframe would look like. We certainly have made and will make a long-term extension offer to both players sometime in the near future. End quote. Not a lot there, obviously, but it is good to hear that, that discussions are happening or at least will be happening. Uh, This was not in any way like a dismissal from Rizzo of, yeah, you know, we'll see about all that. This was like, no, we're interested in this. We're talking about this internally with ownership, i.e. I'm asking billionaire Ted Lerner, I'm asking billionaire Mark Lerner, uh hey, can we maybe make this happen? Can we maybe open up the checkbook to where we make a massive money offer, especially to Soto? And he says yes, because it's going to take a massive money offer to get him to say yes. So I think that's good. I think if you're a Nats fan, you're encouraged by what Rizzo had to say on Monday. There's no doubt for Soto, it's going to take $300 plus million to get a deal done. Now with Soto, you know, he's not due to be a free agent until the 2024-2025 offseason, So it's not like you're right on the doorstep of him about to be a free agent. But as we know with this stuff, especially with Soto being as great as he is and being a Scott Boris client, the sooner the better if you want the guy here for the long haul. The price is only going to go up. Assuming Soto remains Soto, i.e. really good and healthy, he's only going to be able to command more money down the line. The price isn't going to stay the same or go down. It's only going to go up. You're going to continue to have market resetting contracts along the lines of what you just got with the San Diego Padres shortstop, Fernando Tatis Jr. 14 years, $340 million. Like that resets the market. And so every time something like a Tatis contract happens, the price for Soto only goes up. And for Juan Soto, you don't have to do, say, a 14-year deal if you don't want to or he doesn't want to. You could do a 10-year deal. You could do an eight-year deal. You could maybe even do something like a six-year deal. There are all kinds of ways to do this. But what you're trying to do is to buy out at least some of Juan Soto's free agent years so that you don't have with him which you had happen with Bryce Harper or maybe Anthony Rendon's a better example because I don't think the Nats were really truly interested in re-signing Bryce Harper, but I think they did have interest in Rendon. Um, You don't want the guy to get to free agency because inevitably, especially for a Scott Boris client, free agency means bye-bye. Now, not every time, okay? It didn't mean it was Steven Strasburg, but you're taking a chance when you let a guy get to that point. Better to negotiate and lock him up now when you have negotiating exclusivity than to wait until the guy hits the open market and who knows who is going to be coming hard after him and who knows what the who will be throwing at the guy. Trey is a little different, right? Trey Turner, there is more urgency with. Uh, he's due to be a free agent after next season, after the 2022 season. And the good news with Trey Turner is he's not going to cost you nearly what Juan Soto would cost you. Trey Turner's already going into his age 28 season. Uh, Trey Turner is a very good hitting shortstop but he's not necessarily an outstanding defensive shortstop. In fact, last season, Trey Turner ranked dead last among 20 qualified shortstops in defensive runs saved at minus seven. But really, has he really has blossomed as a batter over the last few years. He's someone you definitely want to retain. But this is not a contract to me for Trey Turner that's going to cost you certainly not $300 million. I don't think $200 million. Uh, I think, you know, you're into probably the hundreds of millions of dollars But it may not be that deep into that. You know, George Springer just got $150 million over six years with the Toronto Blue Jays. If that's all Springer got, I mean, you tell me, what do you think a long-term deal for Trey Turner is going to look like, especially if some of his advanced defensive metrics remain not that great? And especially, again, given the age, Trey Turner's not 22 or 23 going into, like I said, his age 28 season. So I'm optimistic, especially with Trey Turner, that something gets done and maybe even sooner rather than later. I don't have a lot of optimism that something gets done with Juan Soto, but that doesn't mean you don't try. That doesn't mean that you don't come hard and come correct, you know? And don't do one of your classic learner offers of, well, we'll pay you money now and then a whole lot of money 50 years from now. Like, none of that's deferred money stuff. Come strong, come correct, make a really good offer, 300 plus million dollars, and see what you got. And if Juan Soto and Scott Boras say no, then so be it. You tried. You know, you did your best. But if you do one of these, you know, mealy mouth things of, well, we'll give you a hundred million dollars, but then a lot of that money will be paid in 2084. Like, no, he's not going to do that. Why should he do that? He's Juan Soto. He's being comped to Ted Williams. And that brings us to this on Monday. Jason Stark, senior writer for the athletic MLB had an article that was published on Monday with the headline, yes, Juan Soto at 22 just might be Ted Williams. This is not the first time, as you may know, that Juan Soto has been comped to Ted Williams. Mike Petriello is a Statcast analyst for MLB.com. He had an article that came out last December 5th with the headline, this young star is the next Ted Williams. And the article, yes, was about Juan Soto. We also had this in early December. Dan Zimborski of Fangraphs. Uh, He developed something when he worked for Baseball Think Factory called Zips, Z-I-P-S. It's a player projection system that uses growth and decline curves based on players' types to identify trends. It's very complicated. It's very statistically advanced, but understand the Zips projections are looked at by a lot of people and they've become very popular. Here's some of what Zimborski wrote about Soto in the 2021 Zips projections for the Nationals. Okay, this was published back on December 4th. Quote, Soto gets Ted Williams as his top offensive comp at his age. Not the Ted Williams who played in the minors for the Mariners, not a data error that led to an odd result, but the Ted Williams. I believe this is a first, end quote. So it's not just say the eye test, that's making people comp Juan Soto to Ted Williams. It's actual data. It's an actual quantifying of Juan Soto that now has him being comped to Teddy Ballgame. The splendid splinter, Ted Williams. Maybe the single greatest hitter in the history of the world, Ted Williams. It is remarkable that we are talking in this way about Juan Soto, and we should be. He has been spectacular as a batter over his first three major league season so yeah if you want to truly do a long-term contract with the guy you're gonna have to pay the piper you're gonna have to pay the ton you're gonna have to get uncomfortable but you're gonna do those things knowing that two years from now three years from now five years from now maybe 10 years from now the deal may well look like a relative bargain like we like to say today's overpay is tomorrow's bargain and the price for the Juan Sotos of the world is only going up. It's not going down. You know, it's interesting with Soto and Ted Williams. So there's a lot of different ways. There are a lot of different ways you can do the compare and contrast. This is really where a lot of the advanced stats can help you because there are a number of stats that normalize offense. So you can compare players from different eras, right? Baseball is so different now versus what it was in the 30s and 40s when Ted Williams was doing his thing. You know, so many things have changed. So you have things like, say, OPS+, plus, which is adjusted on-base percentage plus slugging percentage, adjusted for your home ballpark, adjusted for the offensive environment in your league. So it normalizes OPS. So you can very much compare a guy who plays now versus a guy who played in the 1930s. So OPS plus is basically 100 is average, above 100 is above average, below 100 is below average. Juan Soto, over his first three seasons, has an OPS plus of 151, meaning he has been 51% better than a league average hitter over his first three years. That is sensational. Ted Williams over his first two seasons, which took him through his age 21 season, Juan Soto is now through his age 21 season, had an OPS plus of 161. So if you go by OPS plus, Ted Williams was better over his age 20 and 21 seasons than Soto has been through his age 19 through age 21 seasons. But how about the thing that Ted Williams is known for maybe more than anything, plate discipline. Juan Soto over his first three years, again, his age 19 through age 21 seasons, a walk percentage, that's walks divided by plate appearances, of 16.9, which is just tremendous. Ted Williams over his first two seasons, so we're talking 1939 and 1940, his age 20 and age 21 seasons, a walk percentage of of 15.2. Juan Soto through age 21 season walk percentage 16.9. Ted Williams walk percentage through age 21 season 15.2. Juan Soto's walk percentage is actually better. And what's interesting about Ted Williams is he has his first two years. He's got that walk percentage of 15.2. And then the walk percentages soar into the 20s in each of the next four years, including an absurd 24.3 in 1941. Ted Williams, who had basically like x-ray vision when it came to tracking the baseball, walked in a quarter of his plate appearances in the 1941 season. Again, ridiculous. Is Juan Soto about to make a leap like that, you know? Well, if you go by what Soto's done through his age 21 season, he's been better than Ted Williams at drawing the walk. So heck yeah it's possible. The sky truly is the limit for Juan Soto. He really is a special player. He really is an incredible talent. And the fact that we're actually having these conversations of, is he the next Ted Williams? You know, yes, uh, he may be. You know, time will tell, obviously. A lot of work to be done. But he may well be. This is someone the likes of which we've never had here. For Washington, D.C. baseball. And there's a tendency in sports, as there is in life, to always think of, well, that which happened in the past has to be better than that which is happening right now. And there's no way someone right now could be better than someone who was around years ago. And that's just not true. Sports these days, bigger, stronger, faster, you know, the notion of like Ted Williams is an all time immortal and there's no way anyone could ever compare to Ted Williams. No, actually, there is. Actually, there is. And his name is Juan Soto. Uh, Nationals did have a Grapefruit League game on Monday. Joe Ross was the pitcher. And I say it that way because we had been waiting and waiting on Joe Ross to make his 2021 Great Fruit League debut. Ross gets the start in what ends up being a 9-5 win over the New York Mets on Monday afternoon. And looks pretty good. Gives up one run in one and two-thirds innings. Three strikeouts versus a single and a walk. The run came on a mere sack fly. And the strikeouts were of three of the Mets' best batters. Brandon Nimmo, Michael Conforto and Dominic Smith. So, you know, by now it's Joe Ross versus Eric Fetty versus Austin Voth again for the fifth spot in the Nats rotation. The widespread belief is that the spot is Joe Ross's to lose, and he didn't do anything on Monday afternoon to change your mind on that. Joe Ross is going into his age 28 season. He did not pitch in 2020. Remember, he and Ryan Zimmerman were among the... Remember, he and Ryan Zimmerman were the two prominent Nats who decided not to participate in the 2020 season due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh Ross is under the terms of a one year one point five million dollar contract. That's the same money that he was due to earn in twenty twenty before he opted out for the year. And look with Joe Ross, I mean it's hard to know with certainty what you have with him. I, I think at this point we've kind of seen enough to know like he's never going to be some dominant starting pitcher. But we've also seen with Joe Ross him have success at the Major League level. And so the idea of him having a good twenty twenty one season Really isn't that far fetched. Remember, Joe Ross was a good pitcher for the Nats in 2015 and 2016. Now, that's going back years now at this point. I I get that. And he has struggled with inconsistency and injury ever since. He in 2016 missed more than two months due to right shoulder inflammation. He in July 2017 underwent Tommy John surgery. He in September 2019 missed about three weeks due to forearm soreness. And if you look at Ross's 2019 season as a whole, it was a disaster in terms of him as a reliever, 18 games, 19 and a third innings, an ERA of 11.17. Remember for Ross, he spent a good chunk of that 2019 season pitching for the AAA Fresno Grizzlies. But, and this was so interesting with Ross in 2019, over his final eight games of the regular season, he had an ERA at 268, 12 earned runs in 40 and third innings. And that included a blow-up start, giving up seven runs in three and two thirds innings and a loss to the Mets, at Nationals Park. Now, with Ross in the 2019 postseason, he was not on the Nats wild card game, NLDS or NLCS roster, though he did remember pitch in the World Series. It was Joe Ross who made the spot start for an injured Max Scherzer in game five uh, of the World Series, what ended up being a 7-1 loss to the Houston Astros at Nats Park. Ross in that game, four runs in five innings. So it's been very much an up and down last few years for Joe Ross. But like I said, he was good in 2015, and 2016. And he was good for that late season stretch in 2019 in the regular season. Final eight games again in ERA, a 268. So if you told me in 2021, Joe Ross is quite good, especially for a number five starter, I could totally believe that. All right, that will do it for you and me. Keep the feedback coming. Hit me up on Twitter at Al Galdi. You can always email me the Al Galdi podcast at Yahoo dot com. Ron Rivera will be speaking via Zoom press conference on Wednesday, so we have that to look forward to as the week progresses. Who knows what will be coming up in terms of Washington football team news over these next few days. Like we've been saying, it is a juicy time of year with free agency and the trading period about to get going early next week. Have a great rest of your Tuesday. I'll talk to you on Wednesday. Hit me!